The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. K K U C I I C I C K U C I Irvine. Good morning. My name's Shane Burke. I'm the host of Tech Talk here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Joining me today is Joe Pacirico. He's the Director of Security Services at Security Innovation. Uh, thanks for joining me, Joe. Hey, thanks, Shane. Um, so the first thing that I, I kind of wanted to ask you is just because we have uh, our audiences, you know, college people in college and, and people in the surrounding areas, I, I kind of like to get an idea of how people actually got to where they are. So tell us a little bit about where you went to school and how you got interested in security. School at the Montana State uh, University in Bozeman, and uh, I uh, graduated with a, a Bachelor in Science in, in Computer Science. And um, after that, I um, did a couple of internships at Microsoft and, and uh, definitely discovered that I love building software. Um, uh, it turns out that, that Microsoft for me wasn't a, a, a great fit just because it's such a huge uh, company. Uh, you know, it's like I think when I was working there, it was 40,000 people. Wow. Um, but, uh, and it's, it's just grown since then. But um, at the same time, actually, it's kind of an interesting story. At that same time, um, it was around 2000, 2001, and that was when um, Bill Gates did his big trusted uh, computing initiative. Mm -hmm. And um, that was when he really kind of said, you know, software security is really important for, for our software. And it's starting to be, you know, uh, uh, something that, that people are using to decide what software to purchase. So it's important for us to start releasing really um, secure software. So um, he took everybody off of all of their projects for a week, trained them in security and um, I became uh, uh, kind of the, the security guru for our team for a little while and discovered that I really like security, um, but at the same time, like I said, discovered that maybe Microsoft wasn't the best fit for me. Um, and then uh, Security Innovation was hiring. And so I was uh, young and, and just out of college and um, was surprised by how uh, a small company like security innovation really works you know like it's you're constantly changing um, you know you, the things that you need to learn the things that, they, that you need to do the tasks that you need to perform and and uh, what you're asked to do day to day is just always changing always challenging and, and that was something that really attracted to me to uh, security innovation and um, over the years I've, I've kind of touched on almost everything we've done here at security innovation from um, being a security engineer to product development, um, and now, as you mentioned, I'm the director of security services. So um, I run the the services branch of security innovation. So all the pen tests and code reviews and and, um, and pen tests. We should say for people that have never heard that is penetration, right? Penetration testing. Yeah, yeah. It, that stands for uh, penetration testing, and that's a, a security review of a piece of software from a, a security tester's perspective. So. Um, what we try to do there, I guess, as a little aside, is um, we try to look at a piece of software um, before one of our customers releases 
and uh, really kind of get in the mindset of uh, the hacker, like um, kind of look at that software the same way that a bad guy might, um, and then perform those same kinds of attacks, and then let our, our clients um, know about them, obviously, so that then they can fix them before they release. So, yeah, and, and, and that's kind of what we do um, from day to day here here at Security Innovation. So, yeah. Great. So, um, now, what exactly, I always like to ask this question, too. What, what was your first programming language? I'm assuming you've, you've kind of always been uh, involved with programming, even though you're on the security side of things, right? Yeah. Um, I would say, let's see, day to day, um, I mean, from my Microsoft background, I really like uh, C Sharp and, and the .NET um, framework languages. Um, I've dabbled in you know, F Sharp and some of the other odder um, fringe languages of .NET, but C Sharp is the one that I use most often. Um, for any sort of like hacker tools or things like that, I usually end up using um, a scripting language, uh, something that I can uh, kind of write something very quickly, like Python. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, but then, uh, Kind of like a, what I was touching on before, um, you know, being a consultant, you're kind of required to know all the languages. So, you know, I'm over the years I've become very, very comfortable with C, C++, um, Java, all the .NET languages, Python. Um, I've done code, code reviews for Ruby and Ruby on Rails. Um, some of the the older and more esoteric languages like COBOL and and Power Builder and, and stuff like that. and um, I mean, that's, that's always kind of like just one of the exciting things about the job is you're, you're always programming little tools or doing code reviews or, or doing tests or something like that. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. Right. And, and I'm sure that um, there's also a lot to know about the vulnerabilities of each different languages. Does, does each language almost sort of have its own different quirks and, and things that you need to watch out for? Yeah. Um, there are certainly specific vulnerabilities that either exist more or less in different um, languages or technologies. Um, but then there's also a, a large kind of set of, um, you can kind of think of all the different technologies and as a, a giant Venn diagram. Um, there are going to be specifics to those languages or, or specifics to, you know, multiple languages that are similar. Um, but then they all share common coding issues. For example, um, you know, issues like cross-site scripting and, and SQL injection, um, you know, those, those really uh, happen in, in all kinds of different programming languages. And, and, you know, developers can make the same mistake in almost any technology you give them. So, um, <laughs> in, me, in, me included. So, um, yeah, they, they definitely, um, they're all over the place. So. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about um, what what are the f- key phases of, of developing a security plan or, or a security s- system for your software? Yeah, so um, mainly when, um, so we do a, a lot of, of consulting work here, and um, um, what we found is that the, the biggest impact changes you can make are the ones um, early on. So if you start to have a, a dialogue about security um, early on and in, 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 you know, right when you're starting to think about you know, what are the features you want to put in your, your product or what's this version going to be all like or what does the UI look like, at the same time ask yourself like, you know, what security implications might we have at this 
for this version or this product? You know, how would a um, what pieces of data are interesting to you know me or interesting to an attacker or would be um, you know concerning to a, a, a user of my system? Uh, you know, if if it got lost, so. Um, out of the out of the you know out of, out of thin air, I might think of a a product that uh, collects people's physical home addresses, and um, you know how would a, how would my customer feel if I lost their physical home address? And I'm probably you know a little hurt and and uh, worried and stuff like that. But then how would they feel if you lost their credit card number? And then what protections can you put in place as you're designing the system so that uh, you, know, you can make the right decision so that you know, you're not losing that piece of data and you're doing the right uh, mitigating, you're having the right mitigating techniques to, uh, to protect that data properly. Um, so that's kind of the first thing you can do. And then as you move throughout the, the software development lifecycle, there are different things that you can do. And um, as you start writing your requirements, as you start actually developing the software, you start writing the code, there are certain things that, that you want to be careful of, um, you know, doing things like input validation and, and uh, you know, using stored procedures for databases and stuff like that. And then there are techniques that you can use for, for testing so that you're very sure that you're, you're testing for security, you know, looking for those same types of vulnerabilities that the attacker might look for. And then finally, when you release, you know, you want to release um, and in a secure state, so you know, abiding by the principles of secure by default, and and um, you know, kind of uh, having uh, um, you know features of your software turned off by default, so that you know they're you've reduced that attack surface. So, really, from from the moment that it's uh, you know your per, your your piece of software is just a twinkle in your eye, all the way to the point where it's a real piece of software that somebody could take and install and and deploy onto their own machine. Um, there's something to be doing, <laughs> something to be done um, in software security. So yeah, it's pretty cool too. And we should remind people that you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is Tech Talk. I'm Shane Burke. And I'm talking with Joe Becerico. He's the Director of Security Services at Security Innovation. And our discussion today is about uh, security development. We should also mention that Joe was here at UCI um, and he gave a talk at OWASP, OWASP's uh, AppSec conference uh, called, um, what was the title? It was titled Reducing Web Application Vulnerabilities, Moving from a Test-Dependent to Design-Driven Development. And that's kind of really what you've been talking about with me uh, on that last question. So can you kind of talk about, it seems to me almost that um, th it makes economic sense for a business to think about security from the very beginning because you're reducing how much you spend on maybe uh, things that aren't necessarily applicable to your program, um, but are kind of like the popular things in, in security at the time or whatever the case may be. But um, you can also uh, kind of reduce the vulnerabilities by thinking about security from the very beginning, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so you kind of hit the nail on the head when you talked about like you know, reducing overall cost um, because I, I think that, you know, sometimes, especially with people that, that don't really think about security often, um, they kind of think of this, uh, think of security as a uh, tack-on type of um, 
thing that you should do at the end of the the, the product cycle, right? So right. Um, after you've written your design docs, after the developers have developed the code and the testers have tested, okay, then give it to the security guys and they're going to find some security vulnerabilities and then the developers have to go fix those issues. But um, if you actually move all of that process up uh, upstream to the point where um, you're anticipating the vulnerabilities that you might have. Um, and we do this through a, a number of different techniques that you know I'll, I'll be happy to dive into if you want. But things like threat modeling and threat analysis um, kind of uh, let us anticipate the, the issues that we might have and then mitigate them before they ever happen. Um, so if you... If you've ever seen, um, there have been some research uh, research studies done. I think um, IBM did some research, and and then there's the the really old um, Kokomo paper back from the I think it was released in the late 80s or early 90s, where um, they tracked a a simple functional bug, um, you know, where you found and fixed that that functional bug throughout the the life cycle of software development, and. Um, they said, like, okay, let's assume that um, it takes you an hour to write a, a specific paragraph into your design documents that says, be sure you don't do this, right? So, so you, it takes you an hour to, to write that paragraph. And then once you've written that, and that mitigates that issue, right? So the developers read that paragraph, and they... Um, are sure to, to validate that issue or whatever and, and not write that bug. Then the testers never find it and then it's never released and, and then you never have to write a, uh, a patch or anything like that. Um, but let's say you don't write that, that paragraph and uh, so you give that same requirements document to the developer and since that paragraph that, that's warning them not to make that mistake isn't in there, they make the mistake. Um, so now let's say that um, luckily for you, um, that uh, that issue is found in a code review. So the developer makes the mistake and um, and then it's found straight away by uh, a code reviewer who you know, looks at the code and says, oh, you can't do that um, because of something, right? And then they give that, they write up the bug, they give it back to the developer, and the developer fixes it. Usually that takes between two and five hours to do. So all of a sudden you see the, the ramp up, right? So um, Instead of writing it in the de design phase, you've now doubled or um, you know, had five times more time and energy. It's touched um, two people. Now you have to pay two people for their time and energy. Um, you know, if, if you let that slip to the testing phase, wait till the testers find the issue. And then um, the testers write up the bug report. They give it back to the developer. The developer has to find it in code, has to find the... The, the, figure out how to fix the issue, give it back to the testers to test, then the testers uh, finally say, okay, this, this bug has been fixed. That might be 20 or 30 hours of time. Wow. If you actually release the, the, the vulnerability or the issue, then think of all the, the different people that are involved. You, you release the product, so it's, it's out there in the world. Your customer finds it. Um, maybe a, a hacker finds it if it's a security vulnerability. Um, you have to immediately release a, uh, 
uh, a security bulletin. So, you know, you write up a, a document that says, you know, oh, crap, we have a, a security <laughs> vulnerability. Um, this is how you can mitigate it right now. And then, um, you know, you call in your best developers and your best testers and you repro the issue back in, in-house. You try to find the, the, the issue. You uh, figure out where the, the line of code is. You come up with a patch test the patch, you finally deploy the patch, um, you know, by this point, it's affected your entire team. And, um, you know, we're finding that, that uh, if you don't find these, these issues before release, it can cost you a hundred times more time and money and effort um, than if you just anticipate the issues early or at least find them before you release. Right. So, and, yeah, it can be pretty intense. And, and that probably doesn't even include the impact on somebody's brand and, and what costs that would incur. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's kind of funny because, um, you know, I, I talk with my mom uh, a lot about, you know, software security and, and, and things like that. And then she doesn't really understand <laughs> um, any of these things. But um, but she does listen to the news, you know. So, so she might hear... Um, on the news, like, okay, well, Amazon.com had a distributed denial of service attack, right. which, you know, if you know what that is, it's actually not that bad, right? Because uh, distributed denial of service attack means that um, just a whole lot of people tried to use the website all at the same time. Now, a lot of those people were probably malicious users, um, and the, the, the website went down. It was by no fault of Amazon, and really there's a limit to that issue. But my mom hears that, and she's like, oh, I know that that's in the category of bad stuff that hackers do. They did it to Amazon.com. What does that mean for me? I don't know, but it scares me, so let's not buy anything from Amazon. And that's just a, 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 an example off the top of my head. I mean, um, I, I, I by no means mean to imply that that Amazon is is vulnerable to any sort of security issue. I just um, you know mean mean to say that like you know a lot of people don't know the difference between uh, you know a, a virus like uh, Code Red or Nimda or a, a worm like one of those, uh, a security vulnerability like a buffer overflow or SQL injection, cross-site scripting, format string, or something a little bit more on the fringe like a distributed denial of service attack like I was talking about and um, so you kind of just have to raise the bar as high as possible in order to um, you to mitigate as many of those risks as possible I guess sure and and that you know I've really never thought of it like that but that's a very very good point you need to make sure you explain things and that's something we try to do on this show but you know you need to make sure you explain things to people so that they know um, the actual impact of, of a certain news story or something, you know, that's a really good point. So I appreciate that. I, I'm really going to take some from this show, uh, that, that point that you just made. So I, it, it, from what we've been talking about, it really sounds like security is a process, right? Um, mm -hmm. so now I, I'm assuming like in the, when you actually do, well, let's talk about threat modeling. Cause that's something you brought up. And, and I know you talked about that in your presentation here at UCI. So explain what threat modeling actually is and then how it can be used to um, make, kind of drive your coding. Yeah, so um, 
threat modeling is essentially just a, a process by which we can understand how an attacker might um, uh, visualize the system. And one of the neat things about threat modeling is that we can do it before we have any sort of uh, software or, you know, we, we don't have to necessarily have something we can test against. And I think that that's a, a common myth that a lot of people kind of get hung up on is like, oh, we can't do security testing or we can't think about security until we have a product that we can test. And and threat modeling is a really good example of something that you can do early to um, create a lot of really great um, security mitigations or, or threat mitigations that um, will make your product more secure. So um, when we do threat modeling, the, the first phase that we do is to identify um, the key assets. And, and an asset is um, anything that an attacker might be interested in. Um, so you know, we think about things like uh, credit cards or um, credentials, like usernames and passwords, um, email address stores, um, uh, any sort of personally identifiable information like uh, a real name or social security number, uh, anything like that mm -hmm. um, are potential assets. Um, another thing that, that I like to stick into the category of assets is um, any sort of uh, uh, um, intellectual property. So let's think, for example, that um, you know my software does something better than anybody else does because of some incredibly clever way that I figured out how to do you know something. And this gives me the market advantage. And if my competitors discovered that uh, you know they could flip pancakes the way that I do, that they could you know cut off my competitive marketing advantage. And so that might be an asset too. Mm -hmm. um, so once we've enumerated all those assets and we've identified them all, um, then we want to kind of look at all of the different ways that an attacker um, might, might get into those assets. And so um, any sort of entry points into the system, so those are common entry points like uh, uh, user inputs like text boxes and radio buttons and and uh, drop-down list boxes and things like that are are pretty common for people to try to test um, things. If you're talking about a web application or a website, you might um, uh, put into that category the URL mm -hmm. or the cookies on the website. Um, those can all be input um, into the system. Um, some other input that people don't often think about are like configuration files. Any, any file that the, the application reads from the file system. Um, if you uh, call into web services or, or other applications or other libraries or, or frameworks or anything like that, um, you know, there's a, you can really, <laughs> I mean, if you, if you follow this too far, you can really become uh, overly paranoid, right? So, right. you know, how can I really trust my my uh, operate, operating system API calls? And while that's true, you know, you have to also think about balancing the the best, the biggest bang for your buck, I sure. suppose. Yeah. Um, so yeah, once we have the the assets and um, the uh, entry points, we then can start to uh, come up with uh, different actions and uh, and things like that that we think about. Um, uh, that the attacker might be able to perform to get to those assets um, through the entry points. So we start to think about things like, you know, okay, um, they might get to uh, the user, the credential store, all the usernames and passwords, if they were able to find a, 
a SQL injection in the username and password fields. And uh, they were able to tack on their own SQL commands uh, while they logged in. You know, so um, thinking about those kinds of things is also really important. So in your experience, because I, I know you've worked with a lot of um, companies and, and doing training and things like that. Well, who are the biggest threats, I guess, is a good question. And then what are the biggest vulnerabilities that you commonly see? Hmm. Biggest threats. That's a good question. So um, it's, it's kind of interesting you ask because uh, one, of the, one of the things that I get a lot of pushback on um, when, I, when I do these talks, I do a lot of kind of one-hour uh, webcasts and one-hour talks at different conferences. And, and uh, you know, inevitably I have somebody come up to me um, at the end of the, the talk and say, well, do I really need to think about security? I'm just, uh, you know, I only service uh, 100 people on my website or nobody really knows who, what my company is or, or you know, like things like that. You know, like I'm, right. I, I, I'm just a small fish in a big pond and, you know, is a hacker really going to find me? And um, so usually my answer to that question is twofold. One um, is uh, uh, generally hackers are really efficient at finding vulnerabilities, especially that, that quote-unquote low-hanging fruit of uh, security vulnerabilities. So finding things like cross-site scripting or SQL, SQL injection are just yeah. really easy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, they're going to find those kinds of things. And, and there are a lot of automated tools that will find it automatically and, and things like that. So you really got to fix those. Um, and then the other one is compliance. So a lot of people think of, um, you know, hackers as these guys with, you know, long black leather trench coats and piercings and tattoos and black hair and stuff like that. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, so, so you could argue with me, okay, is the hacker really going to find you? Maybe, maybe not. The guys in the suits, the guys that that come from uh, the Sarbanes-Oxley or the Hippo or, or um, uh, the PCI Council that uh, you know are, are there for compliance, mm -hmm. they will find you. Yeah. <laughs> That's their job, right? <laughs> and um, and so you have to be secure just for compliance requirements. Um, so so yeah, there, I mean, there's that that answer is kind of twofold, um, you know. So. Uh, I think your your other question was, what's my favorite vulnerability? Um, well, and it, that's uh, it was what. Oh, go ahead. What are the biggest? But favorite is actually probably a better question. <laughs> um, so my favorite vulnerability um, right now would probably be a cross-site request forgery. Okay. Um, Explain what that so, is. So, yeah. So. Despite its name, cross-site request forgery doesn't have much to do with cross-site scripting. Um, unfortunately, they, they kind of share similarities in their name. But um, the issue of cross-site request forgery um, is that an attacker might be able to um, force a, a logged-in user to perform some action uh, on their behalf. So the 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 easiest to to explain example is is one where Let's say that um, let's say that that you're an administrator on your website, and um, and I'm I'm the attacker. So in this role-playing game, you'll be you'll be the the victim, and I'll be the attacker. And so let's say that that you have this 
website and I don't have access to the website but I have some insider information and I know that there's this this one page on your website that will allow you to create users mm -hmm. and so um, with one uh, post request I can uh, you would be able to uh, create a user on your website. Now, me as the attacker, I don't have any access to your website, so um, I can't make this request myself. But what I can do is I can create a web page on my own evil server, and um, I can make a web page that will build that request um, for me, and then I can lure you to this website. And when you go to that website, um, uh, through JavaScript, I can actually make that request come from your computer. Mm -hmm. Now, when that request goes from your computer, your browser automatically knows that um, since you're, you're posting to um, the, the admin website that, that you're an admin to, um, it knows that it should send along your session identifiers and your cookies and, and all that information that... that uh, the website needs to identify you. Mm -hmm. And um, even though you don't know that you're making this request, you are. And then I just have to wait to lure you to my website, wait for you to make that request, or me to make that request for you. And, uh, and then that, uh, the, the website will then create that user, and then I can go ahead and, and log in later. And so it's a pretty cool attack because um, you're kind of leveraging some implied trust between um, the administrator and that website. Right. So, yeah. That, that is a good one, and it's a very secure one. And a lot of people, you know, we, we talk a lot about, you know, SQL injection and cross-site scripting and, and C-Surf, as, as we just did. So uh, there's a lot of things out there that people don't necessarily know about, and those are the things that people should really be worried about, you know. So um, it's good that we kind of talk about these things. Um, yeah. So I, I think uh, I'm going to kind of move into like how you actually write secure code. Um, do you basically just write code to mitigate certain attacks or are there certain techniques that you should use to make sure that your code acts in a secure way? Yeah, so both. Um, I think that it's important to kind of have in the back of your mind um, the common security vulnerabilities. Like, you know, it's important for developers to understand uh, like we were just talking about, what is cross-site scripting? What does SQL injection really mean? Um, you know, cross-site request, request forgery. You know, how does this really work? Um, then, when you're when you're mitigating those issues, you can kind of keep those in the back of your head. Um, but there are definitely a, a set of of um, kind of development principles that you can keep in mind um, that would mitigate these things otherwise. So. Um, for example, um, one thing that I, I kind of talk about time and time again is uh, input validation. Having proper input validation is kind of your first line of defense to all of these security vulnerabilities, or, or most of these security vulnerabilities. So um, with proper input validation, you can mitigate uh, you know, cross-site scripting. With proper input validation, you can mitigate uh, SQL injection um, and, a, and a slew of, of other ones. Now, of course, it's first line of defense, not only line of defense. So um, there are other mitigating factors, too, and that includes things like, um, you know, for SQL injection, using things like stored procedures or parameterized queries or prepared statements, depending on your language, yeah. um, can go a long way. Um, output encoding um, helps for cross-site scripting. Um, just encoding in general for your context. A lot of people um, 
think about um, output in a kind of a uh, not a very savvy way. I, I, I guess I should say is is um, and they think that once they they output to the screen that that they're done with that um, that uh, piece of data. But really, we need to think about the context sure. of that piece of data. So um, you know. How does it change if I'm writing out to an XML file, or or that? How's that data need to be different if I'm um, uh, sending somebody an SMS, or writing a PDF file, or or writing out to the terminal, or sending an email? Um, all of these things have different control characters and have different um, you know specific um, bytes that that need to be encoded or changed or or escaped. So. Um, Really thinking about the context for that output is, is really important. And we should remind people that you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is Tech Talk. I'm Shane Burke. And I'm talking with Joe Becerico. He's the Director of Security Services at Security Innovation. And our discussion today is about uh, security development. Kind of one of the areas I wanted to talk to you a little bit about is... Um, this is just something kind of from my personal knowledge. How do you actually protect code that you write? You know, if you, let's say you have an, an included file and you want to protect people, you know, we always hear that you, you shouldn't, um, you need to s save files in a secure place um, if you're on shared hosting or something. So how do, you, how do you actually protect those sorts of files if they have like, you know, passwords to your database or something like that? Mm. So um, yeah, I think that you're probably getting at, at, at like encryption mechanisms and things like that. Is that um, probably the best way to uh, to keep those files secure? Um, so there are all kinds of, of shared hosting and and, and shared um, you know data stores and stuff like that on on the internet. Like uh, you know, there's things like Dropbox out there and and stuff like that that allow for public sharing of of documents. And you know, if you if you um, ever wanted to you know share a document with only a specific set of, of people or wanted to keep it secure um, then using something like encryption is, is probably your best bet um, now encryption works by um, it's essentially a, a mathematical algorithm that takes a, a set of, of plain text and uh, changes it into what we call ciphertext and, and that's just an unreadable format that can only be changed back into that ciphertext if you have the, the correct passphrase and the key. Um, you can kind of think of it as like a lockbox, right? So you put your documents inside of a lockbox and then lock it with a key and it can't be unlocked unless you have uh, that key. And I mean we could, we could talk about uh, encryption for days I'm sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, um, but yeah, that's, that's generally, um, you know, what we talk about. Um, I would say if it's really important to you, uh, I wouldn't probably put it up onto a public website, but, um, sure. you know, every once in a while we, <laughs> we have to do that. But even things like email, you know, like if you wanted to email, um, a document to me or, or, or I wanted to email a document to another friend that was, um, you know, full of passwords or credit card numbers or something like that, um, I would encrypt it. Because um, you know there there are a, a slew of attacks on the internet where um, you know, you can reroute requests from you know point A to point B um, you know through any internet service provider in the world and they can kind of harvest off um, all of that that content so uh, you know it, it essentially anytime the uh, data is 
going to be on an untrusted network, which is by definition what the internet is. Um, it should be protected um, at the level of uh, the the level of the data that that you're trying to send. So, right, it's a credit card number. You probably want to do it right. Yeah, absolutely. Let's kind of talk about testing now. Is there a process to testing, and what kind of metrics do you look at to determine if something, if an application is secure? Yeah, that's a very uh, challenging uh, question, actually, because um, a lot of people think of of uh, testing when they think of testing, they think of of functional testing, um, where you know we have a a, a clear requirement. It says, you know, these are the things that the application should do, and if it doesn't do one of those things, then, you know, the the application is insecure or is um, has a bug, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when we start to think about security, though, it's a little bit of a different question because, um, you know, if, if essentially we're, we're um, instead of looking at what's defined for the application, we need to look at almost everything else. Um, so. Our process at Security Innovation is to um, look at the application, kind of get comfortable with the application, and create a threat model. Remember, I, I mentioned um, you know identifying the, the key assets, um, enumerating the, the entry points, um, understanding how uh, you know an attacker might view the application, and then uh, kind of from that we prioritize all of those uh, those potential threats. So uh, a threat might be that uh, an attacker steals credentials off the network because the network is unencrypted. Okay, so there's a threat. Um, now, um, we might have specific actions or tests that can either verify that that is a real vulnerability or that that vulnerability has been properly mitigated. So, um, you know, as we um, kind of uh, go down that path, more and more tests kind of open up. And, um, you know, there are specific tests for specific vulnerabilities, but a lot of times um, the attack surface is so great depending on the application that, um, you know, it's it's really about um, kind of understanding the overall um, application. Actually, um, so I was going to... Uh, um, mentioned for testers, um, I've kind of over the years decided that, that all great security testers um, have three general tra- traits. Um, the, the, the first trait is uh, complete knowledge of the system that they're testing. So they need to understand absolutely everything end to end. Um, so if we're talking about a web application, we're talking about um, they need to understand the browser, the JavaScript engine, the HTML parser, um, the the uh, you know HTTP protocol, the SSL protocol, um, all of those handlers, how the network card works on the server. You need to understand the the server operating system, the uh, web server, the database on the back end, uh, the framework that it's using, all of those things end to end, so that you can kind of understand where things are out of place, right? So. Um, for example, if you understand SSL, you can kind of understand how that can be done improperly. So, you know, when, when you're testing, you can recognize that. Um, the second thing is uh, a, a good imagination. So, um, a lot of times there are things that are unknown, uh, unknowable, right? So, the, uh, the tester isn't going to know exactly how the developer 
um, wrote their login procedures, for example. Um, but with a good imagination, you can kind of think, well, if I were the developer, this is how I would do it, and these are the kinds of mistakes that I might make. And then you can test for those. Um, and then the third, and I would almost argue the most important thing, is an evil streak, right? So <laughs> you really, um, you really need to be able to think like an attacker, and and, and you know, be a little malicious. Uh, you know, it's it's okay to kind of take a vulnerability to its end point. Um, you know, for example. Uh, you know, cross-site scripting is a is a fun example because on one hand we have um, uh, a cross-site scripting issue. You can pop up an alert box, you know, and that's that's fun. You know, you 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 pop open a little JavaScript alert and you say, "Oh, you were hacked by Joe" or something like that, and um, and that's fun. And 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 usually people go, "Okay, I see that there's an issue here, and I'll go fix it." But sometimes it's it's also important to kind of take that to its limit um, and especially with things like cross-site scripting, people don't realize that um, this can result in, in essentially complete browser session takeover. Um, you know, I can browse you to specific websites. Um, I can uh, collect your, your keyboard key presses and your mouse clicks. Um, you know, I can log you out or log you in uh, to different websites. Um, I've actually seen uh, demonstrations where um, uh, an attacker is able to uh, uh, configure anything with a web interface. So uh, you're thinking about, oh, well, what other websites do I have access to? But think about your your printer probably has a web interface. Um, your uh, wireless access point has a web interface. Um, any of these things can be uh, controlled by a cross-site scripting vulnerability. So when you think about like the impact, it becomes <laughs> pretty huge uh, when you when you start to like push things to its limits. So without that evil streak, you may not be able to put two or three different things together to to make that vulnerability as impactful as possible. Sure. It seems so. What I'm gathering from what you said already is that um, you kind of use a combination of automated testing for things like SQL injection or um, cross-site scripting or, or anything like that. And then you also need the code reviewers and, and uh, the testers that really understand the entire system. So um, how, you know, how, how, how do you make sure that at least the automated tools don't become obsolete and, and is training an important part for keeping the humans up to date too? Yeah. Um, so this kind of reminds me of um, something we, we did a little bit of research in before, which is this um, application security maturity model, which um, you know a lot of organizations kind of have this this realization that security is important, and um, they also realize at the same time that while security is important, they have no idea how to be secure. Mm -hmm. So um, they look out into kind of the the range of uh, security solutions, and on one end of the spectrum. There's this this shiny new tool that they can buy for ten thousand dollars, and they can plug it into their network, and it will start to work immediately. Um, or there's this 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 cool scanning application that they can plug into their software system, and they can test with. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, there's training, and um, they realize that, that training is probably the right way to go, but they also realize that, well, training's kind of slow and, and they want some impact right now. They're, we're insecure right now, so we need to be 
uh, you know, make changes right now. And uh, so they buy the tools, right? They're like, okay, well, for $10,000, this will make me secure. And they plug it in and it gets some results and they read the reports and they realize they have no idea <laughs> what those reports talk about. You know, they're saying there's injection points here and you might have a vulnerability there and they have this and this and this. And they go, oh, crap. So we just bought this tool and it is meaningless to us. Um, so then they kind of have this, this what we call the pit of despair. Um, they have this, this feeling in their gut like... I just bought this this very expensive tool, and it hasn't gotten me any closer to being secure. Um, and then they turn back to the the training, um, and then they start to learn about things like you know common vulnerabilities, common threats, um, you know common mitigating factors, and things like that. And then they go back to the tool and um, and their products, and they realize that they can they can start to write secure code from here on out. They can test their own software for security and the tool that they used um, is starting to make more sense and they're starting to realize that oh this tool um, you know actually is beneficial um, but it wasn't until I was able to augment that with training and um, you know my own personal process you know it's, it's important to have process in mind too um, and then when you mar uh, marry both of those things together, all of a sudden you have uh, an actually robust and secure solution. So, yeah, that's where it starts to get really cool. So it's it's really a combination then of between you know the the humans and and the tools, and um, education sort of makes it all come together in a way, I guess. Yeah. So um, the last thing that I wanted to talk to you about uh, was about documentation. How how important is documentation in you know any sort of security design and uh and making sure that after it's deployed and and in production um you can respond to anything that comes up uh nah, don't don't worry about documentation just go <laughs> testing willy-nilly and uh go you know whatever you want <laughs> i'm just kidding um of course documentation is important um you know documentation starts right in the beginning um you know like we were talking about threat modeling um that threat modeling uh, process actually produces a document that um, should be living and, and up to date throughout the entire process. So um, you, you create that threat model straight away um, alongside the, the requirements and design documents. And then as the developers come up with new threats and, and new mitigating factors or new issues, um, they update the threat model. The, the, the testers can, can use the threat model as a starting off point for um, their test planning methodology. So as they start to come up with security tests that they want to perform, um, they should be documenting the tests that they have performed and the the ones that um, you know they weren't able to get to due to to time pressures or whatever. Um, as a code review comes up, we um, at, at Security Innovation we actually create a threat model, and then if we're going to do a code review, we also um, develop what's called a code review objective document, which. Um, is essentially a test plan for code reviewing. Um, it's just like what we're going to look for in the um, in the code when we go to review it, and then um, any issues that are found. Um, you know what we really like to see is um, for every issue that's found internally that slipped through the the um, threat modeling and um, and uh, code reviewing process should be um, 
documented as a as a bug and then also done like essentially a root cause analysis on. So this just means that um, we look at the bug, uh, we find it in in um, source code, and then we also teach the the developers and the architects how to um, to find it in code reviews, how to not write it in software, and then how to um, write mitigating controls in their um, their early on architectural diagrams and, and uh, design documents and things like that. Um, and then you know you can do that same process of um, you know root cause analysis on any bugs that come from the outside too. If a customer finds um, a bug or a, a, a software vulnerability. Um, you know that same kind of triage and root cause analysis should be performed on that same bug where you go okay well how did this slip through our process and how can we modify our process and our documentation um, so that you know next time we'll find it because I mean you know that uh, the only thing that's that's worse than uh, writing a bug in the first place and having it slip through to the to your customers or whatever is uh, writing that same bug six months later <laughs> and having your customers say hey <laughs> thought we reported this already <laughs> yeah and you just didn't even realize so yeah. um so joe thank you so much for for joining us today um the last thing i i wanted to ask you is how can people learn more i know you guys have a lot of training on your website right yeah um probably securityinnovation.com is a, a good starting off point there's the owasp project owasp.org um there's um uh, security focus and the bug track mailing list. Um, there's um, hackers.org. That's h-a.c-k-e-r-s.org. Um, lots of lots of cool websites out there that that kind of um, you know have really good security dialogue. Um, and then the final one is is me. Um, you know I'm always open for people to to email. Um, I'm I'm much much better at email than I am at phone. So. Um, you can uh, email me at just jbasirico, that's J-B-A-S-I-R-I-C-O, at securityinnovation.com, and I'd be happy to answer any of your questions. So, yeah, feel free. All right. Thank you so much, Joe. I guess, you know, I hope sometime we can talk again soon or maybe at another OWASP conference or something. We'll, we'll talk. Absolutely. I'd like that. All right. Thank you, Joe. And that wraps up my interview with Joe Becerico, the Director of Security Services at Security Innovation. Thanks to him for joining us. Uh, so join me next week at 9 a.m. Um, on Monday, of course, for another edition of Tech Talk here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Next is the blues disease, so please stay tuned. <laughs>